Is this thing on? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Crime with a K. I'm your host, Kelsey, and welcome to our first episode. I'm a little nervous, so bear with me. I'm sure I'll get over it after like the first minute. So just gonna just like make it through the next 60 seconds. I'm sure you'll be fine. Or I'll be fine, actually. <laughs> but um yeah, welcome to our first episode. Oh. So Crime with a K, pretty much what this show is going to be is we're going to cover an abundance of different crime topics. So money heists, murders, kidnapping, sex crimes, um, even, you know, covering what's happening over in Ukraine. I just, I really want to span wide across the true crime board and cover tons of different topics, tons of different things, teach you guys things, and also just keep it entertaining. A little bit about me, just because it is the first episode, and those of you who don't know me, hi. So like I said, my name is Kelsey. I'm 26 years old. I actually grew up in Plymouth, Massachusetts, so home of the Pilgrims, Um, but now I live kind of north of that, still in Mass. And aside from true crime, what I like to do is I love to go to spin. I love to lift at the gym. I love to ski. I also have a YouTube channel. I'll um, shout that out at the end of the episode. And then just kind of hanging out with my friends, going around, adventuring. I love to travel. I love to go to different countries. Um, I actually just got back from New Orleans. So I think either the next case or the case after that, I want to do a case on New Orleans because it was a really interesting city to go to. But with that being said... I won't jump in too deep on who I am. You guys will definitely learn who I am throughout hanging out with me every single Monday. Um, So yeah, I'll be here every Monday from here on out. There might be a few days this year where we don't have an episode, but I'll try to get up either, you know, to the week before or to after just because this year is super busy and I'm excited to bring you guys along. So with that, I want to kick off every episode with coffee of the day. So COTD. And I want you guys to share your coffee of the day on our Instagram. You can go follow us at crime with a K. But since it is the first episode, I definitely wanted to have my favorite coffee in the entire world. And I say it's my favorite, but I don't actually know if it's my favorite or if I just have a love for it. And I just want it all the time. But I, I don't know. It competes. It competes with a couple others. So today I'm having the New England coffee peanut butter banana milkshake. I feel like if you know me, you know that that runs through my veins all the time. And I buy the bags in bulk because it is a seasonal flavor. So they do sell out and they only make limited batches of it. So I did a glass of peanut butter banana milkshake and then I just did a little splash of oat milk. So as my coffee of the day, definitely going to need a lot of it to get through this episode, but this case was a listener request. So thank you guys so much. I do love when you guys send in cases just because a lot of times they're cases that I don't know. I actually don't think I've covered a listener case that, you know, 
I have known about. So it's really interesting when you guys send them in because they're things that I haven't heard about or I haven't found and it teaches me something new too. And I'm kind of learning that case as you guys are learning the case. And I like when we both do it together. So today's episode is about Brooke Wilberger and she was born on February 20th, 1985 and grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, outside of Eugene, Oregon. She was born to Greg and Cami Wilberger, and she was one of six kids. So she had three sisters and two brothers. Brooke was described as a really good kid. She studied really hard in school and hung out with her friends and her family. And she was a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brooke did have a boyfriend. His name was Justin. But during the time of this entire case, he was serving his mission for his church in Venezuela. So Brooke had just finished up her freshman year of college at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Um, She was on summer vacation and she was working at an apartment complex that her sister Stephanie and her brother-in-law managed. So Monday, May 24th, 2004, Brooke woke up and in the morning began like any other. She went to work, she began cleaning light fixtures outside in the parking lot of the apartment complex, and around 9 a.m., Brooke's sister Stephanie checks in with Brooke and then leaves to drive to daycare only for a little while. However, 8.30 a.m., only 30 minutes before, Oregon State University student Randy Hanrud is walking through Research Stadium Park, um, parking lot, sorry, on her way to class at the university. So as she's walking, she begins to notice a green minivan driving slowly around the parking lot. Then the van suddenly, it pretty much like zooms up next to her. And then the man who was driving like jumps out abruptly, kind of frantically asking for directions. And this is when Randy immediately gets bad vibes. And the guy who's kind of being frantic and freaking her out opens the back door next to her. So he slides that open and she sees tons of blankets and boxes in the back seat of the car. She then tries to politely excuse herself, saying that she has to go to class. And as she's turning to leave, he's trying to grab her. Um, so he's reaching out, he's trying to grab her arm, but she ends up booking it away and runs off to class. He immediately jumps back in the car and speeds out of the parking lot. From there, a short distance away on the campus, Crystal Thornton is also walking to class. She's approached by a 1997 green Dodge minivan. The man gets out of the car and comes up next to her and he has an out of state map and he's again frantically asking for directions while touching her arm. One of the school athletic directors was driving through the parking lot at the same time and saw this overall encounter and immediately got bad vibes about what was happening. He drove up, got out, asked what was going on and the driver of the minivan immediately gets spooked, gets back in his car and quickly drives away. At 10 a.m., only one block away from Research Stadium, Brooke is working her summer job at Oak Park Apartments. She had a bucket of water and a mop, and she was wearing white flip-flops with light blue straps. She was cleaning lights in the back corner of the parking lot when a green Dodge minivan pulls up next to her in a way that blocks anyone from the apartment complex seeing her. He gets out of the van with a manila envelope in his hand and starts asking for directions from Brooke. He then pulls a knife out, forces Brooke into the back of the van, and drives away. He drove off for five minutes and then pulled over and bound her hands, feet, and mouth with duct tape and then drives off towards the woods. A few hours go by and Brooke's sister Stephanie realizes she hasn't seen Brooke in a while, so she heads out to look around. 
This is when she found the bucket, the mop, and Brooke's flip-flops on the ground next to that lamppost that she was cleaning. But even more strange was that one of the flip-flops was broken with like the middle part of the strap being pulled out entirely. It's so, like if you're a girl or even a guy too, because guys wear flip-flops when you're walking and somebody steps on your back flip-flop and flat tires you and the middle thing pulls out, it looked like that. Stephanie immediately gets a really bad feeling and she goes to tell her husband, Zach, who she managed the apartments with, and this is when Zach calls 911. Police immediately send detectives to the scene and once they saw the bucket and the flip-flops, they immediately opened a missing persons report on Brooke Wilberger. Upon looking around, they found that Brooke's purse, phone, and wallet all remained at the apartment complex and it became increasingly clear to investigators that Brooke did not leave this location voluntarily. The first thing police did was see if Brooke had gone with her boyfriend, but he was still 4,000 miles away in in Venezuela. And this is when police reached out to Brooke's family, one, to let them know, because that's what you have to do, and two, to rule them out as potential suspects. Brooke's family was very well known in the area, and once word got out within a few hours, there were hundreds of volunteers that showed up to help search for her. A website was established, billboards were put up, and over 4,000 missing persons flyers were handed out. The local church also put together a search. The area was very woodsy, so it was pretty brutal terrain that these guys were searching in. But once thousands of acres were searched um, throughout Corvallis, at the 11th day mark, the search was called off. But the investigation did continue. So at this point, this is kind of when police are like, okay, so we have a suspect who abducted a 19-year-old girl in broad daylight, which is very uncommon and very rare. She's nowhere to be found, which means that this person has probably tried to do this before because they know what they're doing. So this is when police start going through a pool of different suspects, sex offenders, kidnappers, anyone involved with a sex crime, and they had tens and thousands of them to go through. They had to go out and interview each and every single one of those people to rule them out. One of the first to be contacted was Lauren Hugo Kruger, who had been convicted in 1985 of attempted rape and had served time for the felony assault and attempted kidnapping of a 23-year-old jogger. He'd also been heavily questioned in multiple stalking events in 2003. But on the day of Brooke's disappearance, only half a mile away from Brooke's abduction site, Lauren had been spotted on surveillance in a car dealership at the time of the kidnapping. So at this point, he was ruled out as a suspect. Soon after, 30-year-old Washington State graduate Sun Koo Kim becomes a person of interest. Kim is currently unemployed, he's in the area, and he's known because he recently had been breaking into the Oregon State University dorms, laundry rooms, and things like that only a month before. And this is going to get really weird but so he'd break in and he would steal women's underwear um on march 29th in i don't know if it's teagard or tigard oregon which is about 60 miles away from corvallis police executed a search warrant on kim's residence where he still was living with his parents upon searching the property police make horrifying disgusting discoveries i find them horrifying i find them more than horrifying but i have to share them Um, they find a collection of women's underwear, which contained over 3,000 pairs, used, not used, dirty, stained, you know. He also had used tampons, a collection of pubic hairs, and a timeline of each item. So who it belonged to, where he got it from, and the date that he got it. 
He stole these items, again, from Oregon State University, as well as the Oat Park Apartments from where Brooke was last seen. He had 10 pairs that belonged to a university swimmer who lived at the apartments that Brooke went missing at. And this only gets worse, by the way. So police then search Kim's computer and they find a huge stash of pornography with more than 40,000 videos of sexual mutilation and murder and rape. There is also a document that is a how-to guide to commit a sex crime. And they also found a detailed PDF of a rape that took place. And this is when police believe that Kim is a viable suspect, suspect in the disappearance of Brooke Wilberger. And the media dubs him as the panty thief, which, okay, <laughs> this reminds me. And this is why like, I feel like people shouldn't name criminals because of things like this. The panty thief reminds me of the SpongeBob episode where they did the panty raid. And so then you can't take it seriously because at least I can't. Like, I'm just thinking of the panty raid or that whole episode where they do that. So we need to fire whoever chose that name. Kim's parents did tell police that he was home during the time of the kidnapping, but he was still held on a $10 million bond, which is insane. Um, But he did, the charges were dropped against that because they had no solid evidence to connect him to Brooke, but he did get an 11-year prison sentence for theft, robbery, and stealing all of, you know, those women's belongings. Kim did end up passing a polygraph and did have a solid alibi, but by October 2004, police had a third suspect, Aaron James Evans. Evans had been arrested for attacking a female Oregon State student on September 29th, just a few blocks away from where Brooke had vanished. His stepsister called the media outlet to say, basically, hey, you know, my stepbrother did this, and I know that this girl's vanished, and you guys can't find her, um, so here he is. And the media called the police, who then added um, Evans to their list. The stepsister told the reporter that she believed that Aaron had kidnapped and murdered Brooke and that she knew where the body was. However, police ruled him out as his alibi did check out and there was no body to be found. Sorry, I needed a little coffee sip. The only thing police had to go off of was basically that the green minivan that had been involved in two other strange interactions that day a block away, and then a phone call from a guy named Brian. Brian basically said he believed that a green van had been driving around the area where Brooke had gone missing. However, they didn't have a full name for this Brian, because Brian did not provide his last name, and he never called again, so they couldn't get in contact with him, and he called from a blocked number. So, (laughs) Brian... (laughs) police then get in contact with crystal and randy and the athletic director who approached crystal and the man the athletic director told police that it was a 1997 green dodge minivan with a minnesota license plate and then at this point again they still don't have a lot to go on but at least they have something monday november 29th 2004 in albuquerque new mexico at 5 30 p.m a 22 year old russian exchange student who goes by the name natalie leaves the daycare center on the university of new mexico where she was working she makes a quick stop at the duck pond then walks home down harvard drive and as she's walking someone comes up behind her grabs her holds a knife up against her and pushes her into their car 
as she's pushed into the car, he's climbing on top of her and he's climbing all over her, trying to get into the driver's seat. So he basically pushed her into the car from the drive, the passenger side and then got in with her, basically climbing over her because he pulled the door shut behind him and locked it. He then holds her at knife point and starts driving. And just trigger warning, this um, part does contain sexual assault. So he pulls over, makes her take off all her clothes, and then rapes her. He then starts driving again, realizes that after this entire ordeal, he needs a drug fix, and he pulls out some crack. He lights it, and he's smoking it, and he's trying to blow the smoke into Natalie's mouth and nose to get her high, but she's refusing, and he gets pissed and starts screaming at her and tells her that it's just best that she does what he wants him to do. He then stops at a rundown apartment complex to buy even more crack. He gets out, leaves her in the car, and goes inside. Natalie then frees her hand, unlocks the door. She's basically wearing like no clothes, and she runs out. She's in the street trying desperately to wave down passing cars, but no one's stopping. And I saw one place say that she did run into a nearby restaurant to ask for help, but they kicked her out and didn't help her. However, I only saw that one place, so I'm not sure if that's true. But there was a woman who sees her waving down um, cars in the street and stops. So the woman and her daughter see Natalie in the street. She's mostly naked. They pull over. Natalie gets in the car, sits in the passenger seat, and then the man comes out of the apartment, gets in his car, and drives away. They then call the police, and the police come straight to the apartment complex. Natalie tells police that she was attacked by a man who had a crazy look in his eye and was driving a two-door red Honda. So police go into the apartment complex and they ask around if anyone's seen this crazed man with a red Honda and some woman's like, oh yeah, no, that's Joe. And police are like, okay, well, where the fuck is Joe? Because Joe's out here (laughs) committing crimes. And so then she brings him to where Joe is supposed to be, but Joel was always in and out of trouble and this dates back to when he was younger. He was one of four, two boys, and two girls. He had a loving family and a pretty normal life, but at the age of 11, Joel started experimenting with drugs. And at the age of 14, he was molesting his sister and his cousin, who he then molested for the next seven years. He also began worshiping Satan and committing sexual assaults in the name of Satan. In 1984, he went to a party and left with one of his friends who was a girl He then starts touching her. She says, stop. So he punches her in the head and starts touching her in places that he shouldn't. And she then went with it just to not get hit again. She told him that she really wanted to go back to the party, but he didn't. So she dropped him off at home. And this woman then goes to the authorities and told them what happened. And he was arrested for this. And this is when investigators are pretty much like, okay, this guy's assaulted a woman in 1984 and then again in 2004. Were there any others between that 20-year period because people don't usually wait that long or have that long of a cool-down period in order to attack again? On December 7th, 2004, the investigator working the case in New Mexico realizes that Joel had connections to Oregon in the spring and immediately calls Oregon authorities to see if there had been any rapes, kidnappings, or assaults that would align with Joel's MO of Natalie. Immediately, Brooke Wilberger comes up as basically, yes, we have this case that's unsolved and it's pretty much the same MO, just a different car. 
when detectives learn that rosie and joel have a volatile relationship (laughs) what detectives learn is that rosie and joel have a very volatile relationship rosie tries to leave joel he follows her and they end up living in portland oregon with relatives at the exact same time that brooke had disappeared Three weeks before Brooke had gone missing, Joel had been hired by a company as a mechanic and he was working in Corvallis. Police also learned that during this time in Oregon, Joel had a green Dodge van with Minnesota license plates on it and it actually belonged to the company that he worked for. This is the exact van that police have been searching for for the past seven months. Police track down the van from the company. They get it. They take it in to disassemble it and investigate it. The FBI removes the carpet, the seats, and everything else with trace evidence, and they send it in to the FBI lab in Quantico in West Virginia. In February of 2005, the FBI travels to Albuquerque, New Mexico with a warrant in hand, and they tell Joel that they need DNA evidence from him, which I found this weird, and maybe it's not weird. Maybe it's just me being weird. Um, I just find it kind of gross, but instead of opting for... Instead of opting for a swab test, this man was like, no, I'll pluck you a pubic hair. I I can't, I can't, I can't. So now they have some physical samples to compare against the bodily fluids that were found in the vehicle. While these tests are being run, police in Oregon are trying to piece together where Joel was that day and if he was in Corvallis. Coincidentally, Joel had a hearing that same day that Brooke went missing for a DUI that he'd previously gotten, but he made a call to the courthouse from Corvallis saying that he'd be late, but he never showed up. Family members of Joel called police on May 25th saying that they hadn't seen or heard from him in over 16 hours. Family members of Joel called police on May 25th saying that they hadn't seen or heard from him in over 16 hours. And this is when Joel comes barging in completely disheveled, saying that he had to go into the woods, that there was this young girl that was being held captive and he tried to save her. And then he ended up getting kidnapped and now the police are after him. His hands are covered in blood, but obviously no one in his family believes him, but they don't really question anything. They just kind of chalk it up to chronic drug use. But I'm like, okay, (laughs) it's still covered in blood. So like something still happened. Drugs or no drugs. Anyways. On May 24th, 2005, exactly one year since Brooke's disappearance, the police department gets a call from the FBI lab in Quantico saying that the DNA evidence in the van is a match to Joel Courtney, and there is DNA from Brooke Wilberger in there as well. Now, there is absolutely no doubt that Brooke was in that van and that she was put there by Joel. The DNA is conclusive enough to prove that Brooke was sexually assaulted, so Joel's immediately charged with the rape and murder of Brooke Wilberger. On August 2nd, 2005, Joel was served with an arrest warrant, so now he has to come back and deal with his charges in Oregon, um, obviously because he flew back and fled to New Mexico. I think, oh, he was dealing with um, the Natalie case there. Sorry, I'm still sipping on my coffee. So, however, once he was served with that warrant, he tried to play mentally incompetent, but the Albuquerque court system deemed him mentally competent to stand trial. So, nice try. That's the oldest trick in the book. Thank you very much. In 2007, in an Albuquerque courtroom, Joel pleads guilty to the kidnapping and sexual assault of the Russian exchange student Natalie. The judge sentences Joel to 18 years in prison. In April of 2008, he was extradited to Oregon to face the charges against him for the murder and rape of Brooke. 
In the spring of 2009, 42-year-old Joel Courtney was standing trial against his charges for the rape and murder of Brooke. Prosecutors brought in evidence that Joel has been violent against women numerous times over the past two decades. There was one instance where he tried raping his sister, so he climbed on top of her in the middle of the night while she was sleeping, was straddling her, and the only way to get him off of her was she took an alarm clock and smacked him over the head with it to get him to stop. They also brought forward that he was raping and molesting his younger cousin, um, and she was too scared to say anything, and she was scared of her big cousin. They also present a witness who spent time with Joel the night before Brooke's disappearance. This person says that they were drinking and smoking crack all night, so obviously this means that Joel's under the influence and in a bad state of mind when he does cross paths with Brooke. The family members of Brooke were begging the prosecution to do whatever it takes to get Brooke's body, even if that means striking a deal with Joel. The prosecution then presents the deal to Joel that says if he pleads guilty and tells him where the body of Brooke is, then he would receive life in prison without parole. Mind you, they're charging him on the only crime in Oregon that would allow the death penalty. He rejects the offer. However, he comes back and says, okay, I'll do, I'll do all that if I can be incarcerated in New Mexico near my family instead of Oregon. However, Governor Richardson of New Mexico is completely against this and is less than thrilled at this offer. But Brooke's family appeals that and basically begs the governor to change his mind. Um, He does change his mind and accepts to let Joel be transferred to New Mexico. And on September 18th, 2009, Joel accepts and signs the plea deal and draws a map of where Brooke's body is buried in a shallow grave. He He tells the story, which is obviously his side. He says that he abducted her, he bound her up, took her to the woods, bought her romantic uh, bought her a romantic McDonald's dinner with a bottle of wine, and then in the morning he raped her. Joel says that in the morning that he raped her. Joel says that in the morning he raped her, but he wasn't telling this story like and then I raped her. He was telling the story as if they were making love and having consensual sex and they loved each other so much and he loved her. Um, but when Brooke ended up fighting back during that attack, he tried to calm her down, but she fought so hard and became so upset that Joel got really angry that she wasn't enjoying what was happening. So he punched her in the head and then crushed her skull with a nearby piece of wood. After this confession, police took the map Joel drew and drove about 10 miles outside of Corvallis into an area known as Coast Range and attempted to find Brooke. The police searched in an area that he gave them and they didn't find the body at first, but at 9.40 a.m., police find the shallow grave and the remains of Brooke Wilberger. On September 21st, 2009, Courtney was formally sentenced to the rape and murder of Brooke Wilberger. He got life in prison without parole. He served time at a supermax prison, but is currently incarcerated at the medium security Lee County Correctional Facility in Hobbs, New Mexico. And that is the case of Brooke Wilberger. So that case, so this is a listener request. And I did this one a little while ago. Um, Like I wrote, I found the notes for it and like did the research on it and everything. And... I had a really hard time sleeping after this one. Cases like this really do a number on me. And I, there's not really much that, like, there aren't really many cases that do make me feel 
scared and horrified and this was definitely one of them and there are a few documentaries on youtube i'll link them below in the show notes so you guys can go watch it but they again walk you through the whole case and you can see what joel looks like and you can see the family and the police investigators and all the things like that but again thank you for submitting that listener case it scared the shit out of me but i'll just we're fine taking magnesium to sleep now um okay but yeah, so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure that you download it. And yeah, because that really supports my podcast. And if you want to submit a listener case, you can either DM me on Instagram. It's again at crime with a K. Or you can send an email to crime with a K at gmail.com. And then also, if you want to watch my YouTube, it's not really true crime based. It's pretty much more lifestyle Um, So you get to see kind of like the behind the scenes of the podcast. You get to see what I'm up to, the things I'm doing, just a whole different side of me because I know that I'm only like a microphone right now. And um, this is true crime related. So you can follow me on YouTube at Hello Kelsey. And my personal Instagram honestly is so boring. I'm not even going to give that out. I'll probably be more active on the crime with a K Instagram. But thank you guys so much for listening. I had so much fun doing this and I will see you guys next Monday in another episode of Crime with a K. See you then. Bye.